It probably goes without saying that's an excellent song choice for our topic. As we jump into week four on the introduction to Baptist ecclesiology, I just want to put a reminder, especially for those who may not have been here in prior weeks, that this is, again, not a sermon per se, but more of a lecture. Uh, for there will, may be exhortations throughout, um, really, what I say, throughout what I say. But again, just to put it uh, frankly, it's an unashamed view of the doctrine of church ecclesiology from a Baptist perspective. Because as you're aware, we're a Baptist church. Not a Presbyterian church, not an Anglican church. For we love our Anglican and Presbyterian brethren, but we're Baptist. And doctrine matters, and why is that? Why, did the, why does doctrine matter? Because God matters. And he has given the totality of his word for us, for, our right, for us to be built up, for us to be equipped, and for us to be conformed to, to be more like Christ. Now, this is probably the only week so far that I actually haven't notes, got notes uh, to give to all of you, and I know how helpful notes can be. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to print off notes, plus there's a little bit towards the end that I'm not quite satisfied with before distributing it out. So I hope you will forgive me on that. I do also recall that I have missed, uh, forgotten to send out last week's notes. <laughs> So you can uh, expect both of those to be accompanied together in a, in a soon-to-be-sent email. Now, with that said, why don't we just pray that we indeed distractions and tiredness may be kept at bay. Let's pray. Dear Blessed Father, we again thank you. Why? Because we know that you are the giver of life. We know that in your word that you have given us, you have not saved us simply to isolation, but you have given us Father, the richness and depth of your word for us to delve into and learn more about you and your ways for us. Help us tonight as we delve into this topic of the doctrine of the church and understanding what the church is. Help us to appreciate these things simply because we appreciate and love you. But Father, we know as well that it is past 5 p.m. and it is easy to be tired. It is easy for distractions to rise up. So we pray that these may be kept at bay. So help us in our ears, in our minds, and ultimately our hearts tonight to be open to, and to the prompting of not only your word, but also the spirit in which and whom applies it. We just pray for this in your son's most blessed name. Amen. So again, week four. So to give a recap as I normally do on previous weeks, because it is easy to go, what actually covered? What did we actually cover last week? I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me after the next day to forget what I had even eaten the day before, let alone had heard a week prior. But a recap from last week. Well, Justin, as in the early church, Baptist assembled together because they understood that the scriptural pattern was by becoming a Christian, one was also a member of Christ's bride. Or, if we were to slightly rephrase that, 
They understood that when one was saved to union with Christ, they were also saved to communion with his body. And this communion, this membership, was not only spiritual, and for that much was true, but was to be made apparent physically through gathering with other Christians. Now, the Baptists understood that through saints coming together visibly, again, hopefully you got that concept, Baptists hold to an idea, a Puritan idea of the, the, of the visible saints. So as Baptists came together, understood that through saints coming together visibly and willingly, that such congregations or local churches was the place in which Christians would best grow in their new life through the nourishment of the word and its application. And that such communities required the involvement and participation of all individuals within, recognising, as the Apostle Paul notes with his analogy of the body, again, it's very easy when you read the Apostle Paul and you go through his, the Pauline epistles to see the analogy of the body repeatedly. That each and every person has a role to play in the church. As Ian Murray, is a name which is probably very familiar with us, as Ian Murray states, the spiritual health and prosperity of each church depends upon the participation of every member. You see, the assembly, the local assembly, the local gathering, was not to be a place for passiveness. Every believer, every individual, was to understand that they were obligated to contribute to the body. Indeed, the act of coming together as a local church was formalized through what? Membership. Which was a willful acknowledgement by a Christian that they were covenanting with, or promising, other believers of that local gathering that they were willing to be accountable to that end, to walk the Christian life together. That's why these local gatherings came about. Believers understood they were saved to Christ, they were saved to his body. This was manifested through local gatherings. And as you came to a local gathering, you were saying, I'm a Christian, I want to walk the Christian walk with you, I want you to keep me accountable, because I recognise that if I am not accountable, I will stumble in this world. There was a willful acknowledgement of this reality. Likewise, in these Christians, when they gathered in local bodies, it was also understanding and a, willing, a willingness to help their brethren in this process as well. So when I come into and come to a local body and become part of the local body, not only do I want you to keep me accountable, I want to help you in your spiritual walk also. And that should be a desire of all believers who come and are members of a local church. Keep me accountable as I walk the walk of Christ, as I walk after my Lord and Saviour, as I profess him, but I will help you as well. That mutualistic understanding. Mutual edification. The performing of the one another's for each other's benefit. 
Now, as the church gathered through worship on the Lord's Day, but also through as other activities and affairs of the community, now, as you might recall when we delved into Acts 2, did they only meet on the Sunday? No. They met every day. I'm not saying we need necessarily to meet every single day, but there was a frequency there. Because it, for them, for the early church, it wasn't just an understanding that you just come on the Lord's Day because it was an, uh, that you just come to a building on the Lord's Day. It was an understanding that now that you belong to a community, it's just a community in which we do life together. Right? That's the community. And we just, how do you do life together? Just by talking to someone for 10 minutes? Or actually doing life, bearing all to your brethren and living with them? They did so, recognizing their obligation to God, to each other, and to the world, something we unpacked last week. And this was done through worship, discipleship, and evangelization. These activities linked, the activities that were linked to each of these chiefly and could only truly be undertaken within the context of the local assembly. Again, the idea of how we glorify God, how we do discipleship, how we ultimately do evangelization, all these things can happen outside the local assembly, but best and chiefly occur within the local assembly. After all, when we do evangelize, where are we pointing them to? Yes, to Christ, but then where in? Just go to Christ and that's it. No, go to Christ and come to a local body where, we, where you will be fed, where you will be nourished and built up in Christ Jesus. This is why, as Benjamin Keach stated, uh, the 16th century or 17th century rather, uh, particular Baptist pastors stated that public worship of God ought to be preferred before private. Again, that may sound controversial. And if you're, you find that controversial, I refer you to my notes from last week, which you haven't got in your inbox yet unless you were here last week and got the physical ones. But that is, that if Christians are to strive towards Christ with all the means that God himself has made available for us, then it is impossible to take these means and to strive towards God and Christ in our fullness, divorced of involvement in the local church. Participation and involvement in a local gathering was understood to be the imperative of believers. And there was... And that there was not to be anything, humanly speaking, that stopped or prevented Christians from being able to gather. So if you look into a lot of the resources from the 17th century around a particular Baptist, they took involvement in a local church absolutely seriously. Less if you, if less, they did not allow anything to prevent them, humanly speaking, from gathering, lest they elevate anything above the commands and worship of God, who exhorts believers not to forsake the assembly. And we see that in Hebrews 10, verse 25. Now, a helpful summary of all this, so if, again, a summary of the summary of last week, is by Jonathan Lehman, who states this. It means that the Christian life should be placed inside the accountability and authorizing structures of the local church both because Jesus commands it and because that's how both the individual and the body grows best it means that from the perspective of living out the christian life the words christian and church member 
should be almost interchangeable. The individual Christian lives his or her life in and through the relationship structures that are the local church. Now, therefore, when when the local church gathers, it does so with a willful expectancy. That is, voluntary, with anticipation of meeting Christ within their midst. As we gather here, we do so with a willful expectancy. We understand when two or three are gathered, Christ is there. And that we will be refined by the word of God, and so as to be conformed more to be like Christ... We'll be able to walk with one another through the word being lived out. Again, the the church as we gather here is not just to hear the word. It's also to live the word out. As James states, don't be merely hearers of the word. Be doers also. Where is the chief forum in which we apply God's word? The local gathering in which we're able to apply the word of God of which we hear to each other. However, beyond the, ability, uh, beyond the activity ascribed within the local church, importance as to the structuring of the local church, and indeed tonight's topic ultimately is about the government of the local church. How was the local church governed? And beyond the, beyond the activities ascribed, which we covered last week, within the local church, importance as to the structuring of the local church is evident throughout the New Testament. God only doesn't care that we gather. He cares that how we gather. He cares that we gather in an organized and structured way. We are not to simply organize or gather in any way that we see fit. But God being, again, a God of order, and again, uh, if we cross-reference that to 1 Corinthians 14.33, that indeed God is not a God of disorder but of order, God has also provided the structure in how the local church is to be both governed and operated. Yet it is here that we should pause. And recognize that it is on this point particularly, out of all the weeks that I've covered uh, so far, it is on this point on how the church is to be structured, how the church is to be governed, that is so heavily contested within modern day evangelicalism, including amongst many Baptists. And I've been in a great deal many Baptist churches, I can tell you that, uh, both union and non-union churches. The question as to who runs the church. Now, as we have covered in previous weeks, this was a point of contention, uh, contention amongst the Puritans, with the Presbyterians and Congregationalists differing as to whom was granted the keys of the church. The ministers as the under-shepherds of Christ or the congregation. Were certain keys granted to each? And even beyond this to today, in the world that we live in today, What are the offices with or what are the offices within the church? Were elders and pastors the same? What about bishops? And how much should scripture play a part in structuring the church? Now a friend of mine who will be preaching for us in a couple of weeks, Murray Smith, who's a lecturer at Christ College, he notes that there's a long tradition in the Anglican Church and also in the evangelicalism and Pentecostalism which says, yes, the apostles gave us the gospel, they gave us the faithful deposit, but they did not give any particular shape to the church's pastoral leadership to be. 
Each generation, therefore, is free to keep the traditional forms of pastoral leadership or make up new ones, as long as they are designed to promote the gospel. On this view, there is no biblical form for pastoral leadership in a post-apostolic church, no biblical form of church government. The roles established by the apostles and reflected in the New Testament are ad hoc arrangements designed for some churches in the first century, but they were never intended to be binding on the church beyond that. The apostolic arrangements are not prescriptive for the church, but only descriptive. Now, that's not, this is not Murray's own view, but this is him describing the, evangel- the evangelical landscape of which we operate. But this is why as many churches today have a similar model regardless of denomination. I recognised it a few years ago when I went to a, uh, an Anglican leadership conference whereby they have a senior pastor, they'll have an associate and assistant pastors, and perhaps they'll have a diagnogate or management committee. But the question is, I'm not, and I'm not necessarily criticising or critiquing that right here and now, but the question is when we see that model, the senior pastor and an associate, and an assistant pastors, and then a, a, a committee of management, a diagnostic, the first thing we have to ask is how much of that is actually biblically derived? How many, or how many, have, how, have many churches today, as Murray Smith notes above, simply believe that church polity, and this is what we call the organization and governance of the local church, is malleable. It's okay to change and twist as needed as long as it's for the sake and the advancement of the gospel. That is, that it's not of any real importance as to how the church is structured as long as it is structured. Now, this is where Baptists, like the Puritans overall, have historically held that the blueprints of the church are found within Scripture. Not just as to what Christians do together, through that much is clear and that much is evident. We covered that last week. But how such communities were to be rightly organized and governed under the ultimate headship of Jesus Christ. Now, most Baptists have understood that within Scripture there are two types of offices within the church. Particularly, now, two types of offices, I'm not saying there's two offices just yet, but two types of offices within the church. Particularly, what we call the extraordinary. And the ordinary. The former extraordinary were offices which included the prophet and apostle. Office, uh, officers, these officers were instrumental in the creation and formation of the church. Apostles were those who had received a direct commission from Jesus to be his witnesses, laying down the foundation of the church. And we see that, termolo- uh, that terminology in Ephesians 2 verse 20 as well as 1 Corinthians 3. And with the authority granted by Christ, they were recognized by all Christians as acting with his authority in regard to their teaching. The apostles' teaching was seen as authoritative. This is why when we look at Acts 2, what did the early church do? One of the activities that they did, in fact the first one, is they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. However, with the completion of the canon, the laying down of the foundation and the establishment of the church, it was understood that these offices, the extraordinary, the prophet and the apostle, 
had ceased. For there is no provision in Scripture for their secession. You won't be able to find in Scripture, okay, this is how you appoint an apostle. This is how you appoint a prophet within the church. These officers aren't self-propagating beyond what we see after the close of canon. Now, this is opposed, this is different to the ordinary officers, elder and deacon, where there is a clear ordination and secession of these officers. We read, in, in fact, the qualifications just before as we delved into and read the word of God. We see this in 1 Timothy 3, but we also see this in Titus 1. Each role in different ways, that is, elder and deacon, continued upon the foundations that the apostles and prophets had laid, had established. Now, it's actually in in some ways a a Baptist distinctive, to which I'll go into a bit shortly, that there are only two officers in the organization of the church. Now, John Gill, who I mentioned last week, 18th century Baptist minister, one of the most learned men of of that time period, says somewhat pointedly that the ordinary officers of the church are pastors and deacons, and these only. Though Antichrist has introduced a rabble of other officers that Scripture knows nothing of. Again, that's pretty pointed by Dr. Gill. But the point stands, there are two ordinary officers, elder and deacon. Now, elders, when we look at the most prominent ordinary office within the church, it's that of an elder, to which a considerable amount of space is given within the pages of the New Testament. Their continued pattern of being appointed, we see in Acts 14.23, Titus 1.5. We see the criteria of the office in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, what we read out earlier, as well as Titus 1, verse 6-9. And we see what their duties are all outlined within the pages of Scripture, which speaks ultimately. When we see, okay, this is what the office is. This is how you appoint people to that office. This is what you see their duties are. All these speak to the perpetuity of the office within the church, within the local gathering. Because, again, the qualifications of how we appoint men into this office are there. We see that we see within the descriptors, within acts of people being appointed to this office. And we also see the duties of this office throughout the pages of the New Testament. So these all speak to the perpetuity of this office within the church until, at least, the return of Christ. Indeed, by virtue of these passages which speak as to the qualifications of an elder and the provision of guidance as to how they were to be selected, another point to which we will return to shortly, these denote that there is an onus upon churches to have elders. Otherwise, why are they in Scripture? A responsibility that did not simply conclude in the early church. Now, the term elder is that for which the term, and I'll I uh, hope you'll forgive me. I'll just skip the Greek because it's probably of no help anyway. But the term, uh, the term elder is that for which the term uh, pastor and overseer can be used interchangeably. You might have heard of that previously. For within Scripture, it is clear that such pa- passages as 1 Peter 5, 1-2, and Acts 20, 17, and 28 demonstrate that these are different titles that outline different aspects of the elder's role. Peter in 1 Peter 5, 1-2 states this, 
I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd, that is pastor, right? Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Again, elders, what are elders called to do? Shepherd, what else are they called to do? Oversee. Likewise, Luke in Acts 20, now from Miletius, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And he told them, be on guard for, uh, for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Again, Paul summons the elders. What does he tell them to do? Shepherd and oversee. You already see the interchangeability of these terms. The title elder is being used, but the function which they've been called to do is the shepherd, it's a pastor, and also oversee. However, it is to be noted that the term elder is that generally used within the New Testament when it's speaking and referring to this office. Pastor, as a noun, can actually only be found in one passage in the New Testament, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. Elder, they'll... That means elders, the term elders is used much more frequently and that's why I personally prefer using the term elder than pastor simply because you find it being used in scripture much more often. But elders were to be those who instructed and discipled other believers in the word. They They were to serve as examples to the flock and you'll find that exhortation in 1 Peter 5, 3. Of, of what it, and that, that, that examples of the flock and how what they meant to exemplify, well, of what it meant to live in a faithful submission to Christ. As such, they would have their faith examined and imitate, imitated. We see that in Hebrews 13, verse 7. They would serve as elders in the faith to those who were younger. However, these individuals to whom the rest of the local church were to be submitted were not to lord their position over those to whom the Lord had entrusted them. And we see that in Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5. Instead, as per the criteria of the office, elders would serve in all humility and gentleness, tenderly shepherding their flock, guiding and equipping them to the work of the ministry. Indeed, the central role of the elder to this end is that through instruction and application of the word, they are, that is, elders are to help believers become more involved in the spiritual communities to which they belong, to which they have been called. That is, the vertical communion they have in and through Christ, as well as a horizontal communion they have with each other. Again, elders are called to help an individual Christian grow and and foster them and nurture them in that growth in these areas, both with God and Christ, but also with each other. By instruction, guidance, demonstration, admonishment, and chastisement, elders would help congregants live the word individually and corporately, and thus live a life worthy of their calling. 
they, uh, the calling that they re- had received. By doing so, they would, and this is a quote here from uh, Ephesians, build up the body of Christ until all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. However, elders could not do this alone. Whilst they were, in many uh, respects, the head teachers in instructing, exhorting, and demonstrating the word, such could only be effectively accomplished in the gathering when each member was committed in doing so together. An elder can, of course, teach and demonstrate and exhort, but if the individual body, if the body, uh, if the body itself and the individuals within aren't interested then the efficacy of the elder's ability to do all these things is going to be impaired, isn't it? Because he's going to exhort, he's going to, he's going to uh, bring God's word to you, but if no one within the local gathering is interested in doing so, well, it's only going to fall upon empty ears. Now, this is uh, specifically with the common and mutual goal of conforming to Christ. That's the point in many ways of the local gathering. We're here together to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And this is something which takes all of us together operating as a body. Now, Edmund Clowney, the, uh, the late Presbyterian scholar, rightly notes that the understand, this understanding, when he states that without the support of the whole body, the work of those with greater gifts for leadership, would not be effective. It wouldn't even be possible, right? So for the elders to be effective, it requires a body committed to walking with one another. Now, this should not be surprising, for elders were called out of the local churches to which they ministered, such being evidence from the charge given to Titus. Again, when you see the instruction given to Titus in Titus 1, he's instructed to appoint elders in every town. Now, the leadership of the elders was to be dependent upon, recognized within, and facilitated by the local church. This being largely due to the reality that such roles could not exist apart from the very presupposition of a local church gathering in the first place. After all, whom to whom is the elder to look after but the people who he has been entrusted with? So often, again, the understanding in a local church was that elders were appointed from the local congregations in which they served. And again, the whole office of elder presupposes a local gathering to begin with. After all, who are you appointing them from and who are you appointing them to? So there needs to be a local body in order for there to be an elder to begin with. Now, in summary, elders were to be stewards of the ministry of the word. They were to guide, lead, and as Calvin, John Calvin states, instruct the people to true godliness, administering the sacred mysteries and exercising discipline. By this, they upheld the authority that Christ, being the head of the church, had entrusted to them. And I'll delve a little bit further into that later on. So again, that's the office of an elder. And there's a lot in scripture which talks about the office of an elder and the duties of an elder. But certainly less clear than the office of an elder, but still apparent in Scripture is the role of a deacon. The reason as to why the relative uncertainty in comparison is simply due to the lack of scriptural description as to the scope and the description or scope and the function of this particular office. However, the criteria and the qualifications of the office are likewise given alongside that of elder. 
in 1 Timothy 3. So as we read out earlier, we see what the description and qualifications to appoint elders are, but shortly after we see what the description and qualifications to appoint deacons as well. And which speaks as to the necessity of a moral and upright character consistent with that of being a follower of Christ. Now the testimony of the church, again, you have this relative uncertainty because you don't find the word in office of deacon as much as you do as the office as elder. That's just the reality of things. But the testimony of the church, historically, as well as scriptural implications, seems to outline that such an office was entrusted with the care of the physical necessities of the church, with the narrative of Acts 6 serving as the main text, which in Acts 6 is the appointment of the seven. Seven disciples were chosen to look after the equitable care of the widows within the local community. As you may be aware, Acts 6, what happened? Well, the, the... the widows belonging to the, the Hellenic Jews weren't being looked after. And so, again, after complaints and after, uh, after complaints being raised, what ended up happening? Well, the apostles, they themselves said, it is not right for us to wait upon tables. Choose from amongst yourselves seven people of a noble and right character. And what did they do? They, the, the disciples, they chose... From, within, uh, from amongst themselves, seven individuals who fit this profile, including Stephen. Now, to test uh, equ- equitable care of the widows within the gather- gathering, Nehemiah Cox, the 17th century pastor, when outlining the role of deacons, recognizes that this passage, that is Acts 6, demonstrates that a deacon, being an ordinary officer in the church, appointed to minister therein for the relief of the poor. So he looks at Acts 6 and he goes, well, what's the main thing that we see about deacons in this passage? Well, they're to look after the relief of the poor, of the needy. This is the immediate application of Acts 6. What's the scope of a deacon? Well, according to that that understanding, it's there to look after the poor. Now, Benjamin Keach, who... uh, Again, hopefully he's a name that you're beginning to hear from me from uh, time to time. Benjamin Keach, who served at the church. Uh, so just to give you a bit of a really quick run through uh, particular Baptist history and how interesting it is, but again, I'm getting a bit nerdy here, is that Benjamin Keach, 17th century particular Baptist pastor, right? So he's one of the more notable pastors of that time period. Now, after him, him after he dies... There's another pastor, I won't necessarily touch on him, but after him becomes John Gill. John Gill ends up pastoring the same very, very same church. After John Gill dies, in, and so John Gill was in the 18th century, after John Gill dies, there's one or two pastors who live and die, maybe three, and who ends up taking over that same very, uh, very same church? A little-known pastor called Charles Spurgeon. So there's a, there's a common consistency amongst a particular Baptist there, going from Benjamin Keach, John Gill... Charles Spurgeon. So again, I just interesting connection between all three. But anyway, I digress. Benjamin Keach dedicates just a small section of the, his work uh, uh, of his work, the True Church, to the work of deacons. He very just one paragraph. This whole uh, little treatise on the church and the role of elders, and treats he only puts one paragraph to deacons, and he states, "The work of deacons is to serve tables." That is, to oversee the provisions for the Lord's table, the minister's table, and the tables of the poor. They should, A, provide bread and wine for the Lord's table, 
B, see that every member contributes to the maintenance of the ministry according to their ability and their own voluntary subscription of obligation. C, see that each member uh, does give weekly to the poor as God has blessed them. And D, visit the poor and know their condition as much as uh, in them lies, that none, especially the aged widows, be neglected. And he provides a whole bunch of verses to support that paragraph. Now, with a, Nehemiah Cox's own description is relatively narrow of a deacon's duty, but it would demonstrate at the very least a deacon is particularly entrusted with such a function, that is, to look after the poor. And this particular function, this particular duty, cannot be argued against. It's clear that's one of the immediate concerns, the poor, the widows. But if we were, but it could be argued... And rightly, if you, one was to expand the role of a deacon based on Acts 6, verses 3 to 4, to also include assistance in a ways that ensured that, A, those who had the duty to pray into the ministry of the word were able to be devoted to such duty. So, again, the deacon's there to help them, help those individuals to be devoted to prayer and to, um, to prayer and also to the ministry of the word. So that's the role of the deacon. But the others, and also B, that the physical needs of those within the local gathering were keenly met. So if we would expand some more principles from Acts 6, those would be two more functions, where to assist those who entrusted with the teaching of the word, as well as to look after the physical needs of those within the local gathering whenever they arise. But again, there's not a lot said on deacons in comparison to elders. Now, while there are two offices which were understood as being continued within the local church, there was some divergence on four of other offices, such as the role of evangelist or teacher within Baptist belief and thought. Some held that evangelists were individuals who were particularly gifted in proclaiming the good news of the risen Christ, and were attached to the local gathering, so individuals who particularly had the gift of evangelism. Others, on the other hand, believed, such as Nehemiah Cox, understood that the role of evangelists were instead an extraordinary office, and Nehemiah Cox actually looks at Titus and Timothy as being evangelists, and he sees them as being an extraordinary office who entrusted authority by the apostles. And as such, because they were entrusted authority by the apostles, they had authority over a number of churches, and they were particularly called to plant and regulate churches, which explained why, again, uh, individuals like Titus, his power and authority doesn't, isn't restricted to a single church. This is why Paul talks to him in Titus 1, to go appoint, uh, you know, that he left him in Crete and to do things which were unfinished, including the appointment of elders in every town. Likewise, regarding the role of teachers, there was also disagreement, whereby some thought it was only an office that served the early church, whereas others believed it described another function of an elder. So you sometimes may hear that, pastor-teacher. Right? So just like how pastors or elders, rather, are called to shepherd, they're called to oversee, another function they're called to do is teach. So they saw teaching as being synonymous with an elder. However, 
Others, yet others, like Benjamin Keish, they believed it described individuals who were particularly gifted in expositing the word of God and who supplemented the work of the elders, although they themselves having no authority within the local church. However, almost all Baptists concurred that such offices were at best additional supplements to the prescribed ordinary offices within the church, and that is elders and deacons, to which qualifications were expressly given in Scripture. Again, when we look at what the qualifications are, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, elders, deacons, not evangelists, not teachers, only two offices. As Keach suggests, the church thus constituted ought forthwith to choose them a pastor, elder, or elders and deacons. We read of no other offices or offices abiding in the church. Now, much of what I've said, particularly at this point, is not particularly controversial amongst those of the Reformed and Puritan tradition. Both believed that these were the only two mandated ordinary officers of the church and held to an understanding that for a church to be spiritually healthy, you need a plurality of elders and you need a plurality of deacons within a local church. Now, this was due to the nature that elders, uh, that when elders were mentioned, it was generally in a plurality. Titus, as we have been touched upon above, was called to appoint elders in every town likely speaking of appointing elders in every congregation that gathered in those towns. Likewise, Paul, in his Philippians epistles, uh, epistle, greets all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, plural, and deacons, plural. He summoned, as we mentioned, read out earlier in Acts 20, he summoned the elders of the, of the church in Ephesus, and likewise in James, James instructs his readers to call for the elders of the church to pray over the sick. Again, elders, plural. It is as, uh, as the Presbyterian Lawrence R. Ayers noted that evidence from scripture is overwhelming on this point. One man rule in the church is not what scripture teaches. However, Presbyterians having generally, uh, have generally differed with the Baptists upon their understanding of elders themselves. So, again, on this point, elders, deacons, Presbyterians, Baptists agree. Right? Both from the Puritan tradition, we both agree on this point. But Presbyterians have generally differed with the Baptists upon the understanding of elders themselves. Whereby recognizing that the role of elders and deacons, uh, recognizing that the role of elders and deacons, they go further to demarcate the role of elders to two distinct classes. That of is, if, is, and if you're familiar with Presbyterian ecclesiology, teaching elder and ruling elder. Noting, noting this distinction, the Presbyterian John McPherson, uh, McPherson states, the first and most prominent is the ministry of the word, which is a most comprehensive office in which are discharged at least three functions, ministering as pastor, teaching, and exhort, uh, exhorting. The second office is one of, uh, of which the function is ruling. The third office 
is one which has a twofold function by giving and showing mercy, exercising personal care, and distributing what the care of others has provided. So what John McPherson is saying there is that there's three actual offices. You have the teaching elder, who is effectively he calls, and as a lot of Presbyterian, within the Presbyterian tradition, a pastor. Then you have ruling elders who rule or govern the church alongside the pastor. And then you have a deacon. You have deacons. Now, teaching elders were generally those who were recognized as have been trained and called to the ministry and held the role of teaching. Often they were held as holding a certain primacy within the eldership itself. Whereas ruling elders, on the other hand, were those drawn from within the congregation, notably qualified in line with scripture. So Presbyterians, of course, would still look for the qualification of elders and make sure that ruling elders, which were drawn from the local congregation, matched the qualifications in scripture. And they would govern the church, these ruling elders, that would govern the church alongside the teaching elder. This distinction being drawn from 1 Timothy 5. Verse 17. So Presbyterians appeal to this verse, which goes, The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So again, what in this, in this passage, the, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honour. So elders who are good leaders, worthy of double honour, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So don't look at that distinction and go, that well, there's elders who rule, who are good leaders, and then there's elders who particularly labour in preaching and teaching. And then this, therefore, it justifies distinguishing within the understanding of an eldership between this understanding of a pastor and elders or a, rule, a teaching elder and ruling elders. Uh, on uh, just as a bit of a refrain, when you're looking at the understanding of part, when I said uh, and mentioned their ruling elders, generally were those trained in cord to the ministry. It became such in a way because uh, during the 17th century, uh, persecution of nonconformists, so uh, Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians were all persecuted under the Anglic, uh, under the Anglican system um, in the 17th century. And as such, as they were kind of driven underground, Presbyterians, Congregationalists and Baptists actually often met to worship amongst themselves, often because their pastors were thrown in prison. Uh, so they were imprisoned. And at one point, there's a certain, uh, there's a certain account of in one such combined gathering, the Presbyterians wanting to pull out because the, uh, they had no role uh, for a pastor or a teaching elder to be untrained. So you couldn't, if, if you weren't trained for a proper university or, you know, a proper centre of academia, then there, there was a sudden uneasiness of being able to properly pass or being a teaching elder within the Presbyterian system at the time. Now, while Presbyterians saw 1 Timothy 5.17 as justifying a distinction between the eldership enough to formally distinguish between two different offices, Baptist disagreed on this distinction that the Presbyterians were making, believing that while one elder may be entrusted with the bulk of the preaching and teaching and consequently worthy of material support, that is, in this passage, what is constituted as double honour, that there was generally to be a parity, and that is an equality of authority uh, within the eldership. 
This was not to argue that all elders functioned the same way. And indeed, it was understood within the eldership themselves, uh, within the eldership, to be a diversity in how the elders were to act um, in the practical function of the office. That is to say, an elder may, in accordance with their spiritual giftings, manifest their approach to the office differently than one another. It wasn't arguing for a uniformity in the office, but a diversity in the gifts and how what two individuals acted. But, but when it came to the, their relative authority, it was meant to be equal. There was meant to be a parity within the eldership, which is different from the Presbyterian two-tiered elder system. But that there was a, to be a general parity regarding authority from within the eldership, pushing back any against any concept or notion of a more authoritative elder or so-called first amongst equals perspective. Indeed, the notion of a hierarchical authority within the eldership was seen as an outside imposition upon the church, as in it was seen by the Baptists as not coming from within Scripture itself. We we look within the pages of Scripture and we don't see one elder ruling over another elder. We see that it talks about elders as a collective whole and with an equality within them. So when, when the particular, the particular Baptists, they agreed with Calvin's comment on this point concerning the rise of bishops in the early church. As we have covered in recent weeks, the, the rise of bishops came about in the early church, particularly from the second and third century onwards under the church father Ignatius. But Calvin observes, in each city, those chose one of their number to whom they specifically gave the title bishop in order that dissensions may not arise, as commonly happens, from equality of rank. Still, the bishop was not so much high in honor and dignity as to have lordship over his colleagues. So what Calvin's saying there is at that time they, they appointed bishops, and that was often done just to kind of stop dissent from happening because in Calvin's mind, uh, in how he understood the early church, because you had a first, uh, you had an equality there, you had a parity. Tensions started rising, and so they disappointed the bishop, so he could go, "Well, I make the final call as to how things happen." Uh, but Calvin goes on and states, "The ancients themselves admit that this was introduced by human agreement." to meet the needs of the time. So what Calvin is saying there is this idea of bishops as being a unique office over an elder is foreign to scripture itself. The particular Baptists denied any formal distinction which seemed to elevate a particular elder and likewise saw any attempt to distinguish between a teaching and ruling elder as being an argument that ultimately emanates from silence. As scripture does not demonstrate anywhere where an elder held a higher authority than another. It is as Samuel Wardron says, rightly notes, that the New Testament then teaches the plurality, the parity, and the diversity of elders in the local church. Now, up until this stage, I've been purposely avoiding one particular subject, which you may have noticed. You may, you may not have noticed. Who runs the church? Who appoints the officers in the church? Is it the congregation? Is it other officers? Or is it an outside body? Now, Baptists have held to our divergent uh, positions on this subject in the last 100 years as to this uh, particular point. 
with some distrusting a view of elders and instead instituting a form of direct, direct democracy, whereupon the congregation dictates and governs everything, delegating the pastors as just merely representatives of the congregational will. I've been in churches where everything is determined within, the, uh, within a members' meeting. Every single thing. The pastor is absolutely toothless and is just treated as nothing more than an employee of the church. On the other hand, there have been churches which have been entirely driven and dictated by the will of a single elder with very little congregational input. So what I'm getting at is within Baptist beliefs over the last 100 years, maybe even a little bit longer, there's a real divergence in the practice of Baptist polity within these churches. It could be everything's run by the, and decided by the congregation, every single thing, or nothing's uh, decided by the congregation, it's all by the elders or pastors. However, when one evaluates history, there is a fairly consistent understanding that within the first few hundred years of Baptistic thought, which seeks to clarify this seemingly, uh, seemingly terse and difficult tension between the congregant, uh, congregation and the elders, that most, uh, that most uh, notably, they use the concept of keys. And I've mentioned this in previous weeks um, when we've gone through this. A point uh, that we've covered whereby it's largely understood that, that in Matthew 16, 19, that Peter was representing the church when Jesus states, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now this seems to be supportive of this understanding that the keys have been given particularly to the church by, by the role of the church in Matthew 18, 15 to 18. Now, if, if Matthew 18, 15 probably jolts your memory, it's because this is the classic text when it comes to church discipline. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18, the main passage which talks about church discipline, Jesus states, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Now, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you, as in have nothing to do with them. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth... Will be, have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So you notice you have this idea of what Jesus says to uh, the Apostle Peter, that again he's giving him the keys of, of the kingdom of heaven. And then the next time that Jesus uses that tom- terminology is in the action of church discipline. And so that verse of being loosed, you know, binded or loosed, is, is directly linked to the idea of church discipline. Because it was understood that through this passage above, which talks about discipline from within the situation of a local gathering, talks about the church having the ability to bind and loose as the momentum of the church discipline moves from individuals to corporate church admonishment, whereupon the church exercising church discipline, an individual under excommunication is loosed. So this idea that um, this idea that if by excommunicating them, 
you're actually, uh, what's happening on earth is actually being done in heaven. And this understanding of one who's actually doing this act, it's the congregation, the church itself. Now this passage, this point, of, uh, this point, this idea of the keys and who actually has the keys, whether it's the eldership or whether it's the congregation, was a point of contention between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists and Baptists of that period uh, because the, Baptists, uh, the uh, Presbyterians believed that the church in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18, represented not the wider congregation, but the, the elders who were entrusted with the care and governance of the church. So when it says, tell it to the church, they actually say, well, it's actually tell it to the elders who were entrusted with the care of the church. So their understanding of the church in this passage is actually slightly different. Whereupon Baptists and Congregationalists, and who, who they followed, understood this to speak about the entire gathering of the visible saints. So again, when you tell it to the church, you're not just telling it to the elders, you're telling it to the gathered visible saints who have been entrusted the keys of church discipline. Now the primacy of the congregation in certain affairs was also understood by the Baptist and Congregationalists as being demonstrated such as in the selection of church officers, such as the selection of Judas's replacement in Acts 1, whereupon uh, Peter asked for a replacement. Does he appoint a replacement for Judas? Do the, do the apostles appoint a replacement for Judas? No, they, from, they asked the 120 gathered disciples to put forward two. To put someone forward, and they put forward two individuals. Likewise, when it came to the nomination of deacons in Acts 6, whereupon, despite being apostles and having much more authority than elders, of course, uh, when we talk about an apostle, it's an extraordinary office entrusted with authority by Christ, who have a lot more authority. But instead of appointing people themselves, the seven, they ask the gathered body to select amongst themselves individuals. Therefore, pick, brothers, pick out from among you. It's interesting, again, to note that the apostles did not appoint the individuals themselves in either of these cases. However, perhaps the most pointed evidence of the import of the congregation of the church is that of Acts 14, verse 23, whereupon, and I'm going to quote something here, I'm not going to quote a modern translation. I'm going, I'm going to quote intentionally the Genevan Bible. Now, for those who understand, the Genevan Bible was a 16th century translation. It was one of the first English translations which precedes the King James. And the translation here goes, And when they ordained them elders by election in every church and prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, if we were to go and look in Acts 14, it's a good... Uh, Good proof case of seeing how traditions change and when one reads scripture. But Acts 14, 23, it's, under the, um, it's from a particular segment which starts in verse 21. So I'll just go, go to 21 first and then read down to 23. After they had preached the gospel in that town and, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So you'll notice the modern translation, CSB there goes, 
that when they had appointed elders. Now, appointed elders is a particularly neutral translation because it doesn't tell, tell you how they were appointed. It says they were appointed, but it doesn't actually give you information as to how they were appointed. The Genevan Bible, actually, when, it, when we look at the Genevan one, it went, when they were ordained them elders by election in every church. Now, Theodore Beza and Erasmus, who were two of the main translators of, uh, of the Latin Vulgate and the actual Greek manuscripts into, you know, not the, kind of the Texas Receptus, they both, they both agreed to this understanding that the word there, which is translated in the CSB as appointed, actually means the raising of hands. The raising of hands in election. Likewise, that's why the Genevan Bible translates it in that way. But the tradition changed, just like many other things, in the, in, when, in the form, formulation of the King James Bible, wherein the King James Bible goes, and they ordained them elders in every church. Now, recognizing some of the other changes, like we've said before, the whole idea of bishops, uh, the whole uh, the wording of bishops as opposed to pastors or elders, the wording of, uh, also the wording of church instead of congregation, you know, these changes were intentionally done because we need to remember the King James Bible, as beautiful a translation it is, was very much translated with a particular focus. It was a chief Bible, which was which was, uh, again, done under the purview of King James, but was meant to be a very Anglican translation of the Bible. And the Anglican have a very specific understanding of the church governance. So when they look at the translation for the King James, they ordain them elders in every church. It's funny, they, they follow the Genevan Bible in so many ways, but on Acts 14.23, they go, not the election, but they point, they ordain them. And like I said, when we look at a modern translation, appointed is a very neutral term. What could that mean? But if you look at the Greek lexicons, the actual root of the word, it does mean raising of hands in suffrage, in election. Now, this is why when you look at the... Where did I put it? Ah, This little book here, which is the 1689 London Baptist Confession, when you look at the the actual articles on the church, the particular Baptists understood this as that when these individuals were appointed in paragraph 9 of of the article on the church, it goes, the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit onto the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself. That means the common election of the church itself. And solemnly be set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands by the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein. And of a deacon, that he be chosen by the like suffrage and be set apart by prayer and by the imposition of hands. So again, this understanding of the election of church officers, of elders and deacons being by the congregation by the by being by the gathering of the visible saints is something which was absolutely understood by the particular baptist of the 17th century so you've got this understanding okay so the local gathering the 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 gathering and assembly of the visible saints they could church they could not only appoint 
their own officers, what else could they do? Well, church discipline, as I mentioned in Matthew 18. But when we look at the, uh, when we look at some of the other texts about church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul goes and tells the church of God that is in Corinth to remove the adulterous man from them. He doesn't go to the elders of that church, remove the adulterous man, the man who was sleeping with his fathers. Not to, so again, he's telling the church, remove them, remove the adulterous man from them. 2 Corinthians 5, which presumably many, uh, many commentators take to be, this is the aftermath of the church discipline. So the church discipline, 1 Corinthians, cast him out. The church, Corinth, uh, church of Corinth did so. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 8, Paul tells the Corinthian church to forgive and comfort someone who had been under church discipline, and he calls it the punishment by the majority. So not the punishment by a few, not the punishment by the elders, but the punishment by the majority. Likewise, when it comes to 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul tells the church of the Thessalonians that they, the brothers, ought to enact a form of discipline if anyone does not follow the letter. Again, this isn't to just a select few church officers. This is to the whole local church which gathered in these individual respective places. So you've got this understanding that the church, local church can... According to Acts 14.23, chose officers, elders and deacons by election. Well, I often say if Acts 14.23 is the text which shows and evidences that that's where one can actually elect a church officer, I always look at the Didache being the application. Now, some of you may go, the Didache what? Now, the Didache was an early church document dated to the first, between the 1st century to the mid of the 2nd century. And it states the following. Elect, therefore, for yourselves, bishops and deacons, or bishops uh, being another term for elders or pastors, bishops and deacons, worthy of the Lord, men meek and not lovers of money, and truthful and approved, for they too minister for, to you the ministry of the prophets and teachers. Now this, uh, of course you can see here, choose from amongst yourselves. You already see this kind of pattern here. But this and other church documents led, this particularly led one of the most preeminent church historians, uh, Philip Schaeff, to state that the local churches of individual congregations are ruled by bishops or elders and deacons elected or appointed by the people. Because he saw the Didache, he saw other early church documents, and went, it's a clear pattern that these local congregations appointed their officers from amongst themselves. This is why Mark Dever, who's uh, unlike many of the people I've mentioned previously, is actually alive and well that I know of. He goes, this is why, uh, this is why Mark Dever can say, under God, the final judicatory authority resides not with a pope, or a convention, not with a national assembly or pastor, not with a regional association or a state convention, and not with some committee or board, whether paid or unpaid. Final responsibility for the discipline and doctrine of the congregation under God lies not with the deacons or elders. It lies with the congregation as a whole. This is likewise uh, Benjamin Kichu, I mentioned before, when he's following Thomas Goodwin, the Congregationalist Puritan, that not that the whole government of the church is committed to him, that's an elder. He is not to rule without the brotherhood. He's not to rule by his own whim, by his own desires. 
if he will not hear the church, Matthew 18, verse 17, it is not said if he will not hear the pastor. So again, what he's... what. Keach is saying there is when you look at Matthew 18 and talks about the act of church discipline, it's not when it goes, if he will not hear the pastor, it goes, if he will not hear the church. However, elders themselves were recognized as gifted individuals from within the congregation. We need to understand that. They were recognized for their giftings and their qualifications, and from within the congregation, they were set aside to be those individuals who would lead and shepherd and oversee the church. Elders were not to be a class above, with, uh, above the congregation with limitless authority, but are from within the church. They are recognized and appointed by that fellowship to minister to themselves. So again, the local body, as they assembled, as they gathered, they put, were entrusted certain individuals who they saw had the gifting, met the qualifications, and went, we want you to shepherd us. We want you to be over us and, and, and look after us and tend to us and spiritually nourish us. It is clear, though, that as opposed to simply just being a mere representation of the local congregation, that the New Testament teaches that elders are officers with real authority. It's not like a paper authority where the elder can say something and you just don't pay attention to it. You go, well, I don't care. I'm, an, I'm a congregant. I can just vote you out. That is a sinful way at looking at how to work with an elder who you've entrusted over you and you're submitted to. This is why Nehemiah Cox, he puts it this way, that you owe, you owe the, the congregation, you owe submission and obedience to them in the discharge of their office. And in the exercise of that rule and oversight which Christ has committed to them for your edification. Obey them that, that, uh, that have rule over you and submit yourselves, Hebrew thirteen seventeen. It is not a blind obedience that the apostle requires, nor uh, such as shall suppose a legislative power in church offices, but an orderly sub, uh, subjugation or subjection to them, acting in their office according to the law and testament of Jesus Christ, even a ready obedience to the word of God dispensed by them and humble submission to their just reproofs and ministerial correction when rendered necessary by any misconduct. What, what Cox is saying here is that as Christians, as we recognize that we have put aside, as visible saints, we have put aside individuals to shepherd us, to oversee us, to, to keep us accountable, to use the authority of God's word, Upon us, and as such, we have a duty of care to them, to support them in those efforts, in the discharge of their duties, and it would be remiss of us not to be able to support them in doing so, knowing and really that they have been put over us in many ways. And the particular Baptists recognise that these are individuals that, whilst recognised by the local church, ultimately their true appointment is that from Christ Himself. Because he is the one who puts out and, and gives them the giftings and calling of what to, uh, what to do. And so as such, it, who runs the church from a particular Baptist understanding? Or from a Baptist understanding? Ultimately, it's the congregation who has the final call. But that's not to understand that the church office, office, offices have no role and very real roles to play within the church. Elders are called to govern the church. Congregations are called to 
to submit to them in a willful and humble way. But the same way, when it comes to the church discipline, when it comes to the act of appointment of church de- of new deacons, of new elders, all these go to the final court, which is the spirit-empowered gathering of, in, of, of saints who believe in Christ. And this is a particular Baptist understanding of how the church works together between elders and congregations. But Presbyterians uh, differ on this point. Whereupon Presbyterians, this is to quote um, a very well-known uh, Presbyterian author who um, no, late, um, not later, I think early 20th century, late 19th, James Benjamin. But Presbyterians do not like independence, like Baptists, hold that this consent, like this understanding of involvement by the congregation is a condition upon which the lawfulness of the acts of the office bearers is suspended or as much as a a necessary element in any judgment of the ecclesiastical body as the consent of the rulers themselves. On the contrary, the consent of the members is, upon the Presbyterian theory, a consent added to the authoritative decision of the office bearers, not entering into it as an element necessary to its validity without which it would be neither lawful nor binding. What James Benjamin is effectively saying there is in the Presbyterian concept, because power has been delegated by God, by Christ, to the church, the national church, as we've covered in previous weeks, which goes to the ministers, they themselves can act on church discipline and on the appointment of officers. And when they make those calls, when they make those decisions, the congregations can consent to them. But in no way, even if the congregation wasn't to consent to them, in no way that would hinder the lawful judgment by the ministers. So you can see it's a very hierarchical understanding. The ministers ultimately had the authority, whereas in the Baptist vis-a-vis congregationalist view, it's the congregation which ultimately makes those decisions. The powers of the keys or to receive in and shut out of the congregation is committed unto the church. That's what Benjamin Keach uh, states. And uh, they continue and they conclude here. The powers of the keys is in the church. Appease to me, this is Benjamin Keach, from Matthew 18, if he will not hear the church. It is not said if he will not hear the elder or elders as also that of the apostle in directing the church to cast out the incestuous person. He he doth not give this counsel to the elder or elders of the church, but to the church. So he commands that the church to withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. So in summary, who runs the church? Ultimately, it's the body of local saint, local, uh, the local body of visible saints who have been empowered by the Spirit to make such decisions. But a body which walks in humility and meekness with those who, have, who they have set aside and entrusted over them. So hopefully that's a certainly a certain sentiment that we can understand and walk away with, understanding that the Baptist understanding and how it differs from uh, particularly a Presbyterian understanding, but an Anglican system is even more hierarchical. So I hope you can walk away understanding the Baptist system a little bit better. Well, now I pray. Dear Blessed Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to delve into your word and just really get a better understanding of 
of everything that you've imputed as to, as to the structure and the governance of your body, of your church. Help us, Father, to treasure your body as you treasure it, understanding that it is so valuable that Christ himself willingly died for it. Father, how, how even more so we ought to treasure what you have given us, new life and within this body. Help us, Father, to recognize indeed that the totality of your word is pertinent to us and useful. In his most blessed name, amen. Thank you.